It was freezing cold in Dallas when I made my getaway. I outran a cold front when I gave my truck the reins. Barreling down I-35 with one thought on my mind. Forget the race, find an open space, leave that city. Hey there, howdy, welcome back in. You're right here with us on the other side of Texas. I'm your host, Jay West, Texas Leeson. So glad that you guys share the program, that you're joining us. Hopefully this is your first time around and you enjoy this time around with us. Ross Ramsey, executive editor of the Texas Tribune, coming up. And have you heard about this bill? Uh, a bill in the Texas legislature that would require that A&M and University of Texas begin to play on an annual basis again to renew the rivalry Uh, that bill has been filed as bills are beginning to be filed i think some five thousand or so i'll ask ross here in a moment how many bills get filed from legislature to legislature but a bill to put up to require that a&m and ut play one another that is uh, what lyle larson out of san antonio you've heard him before on the program talks about pay to play and how that uh, dovetailed in with our regent gate coverage and uh has some views on water i'm sure we'll hear from representative lyle larson uh, a few times but that is of intrigue and i want to hear him talk about the legislature's role in requiring uh, that game be played a hot topic out there right now the hot news is we enter in this edition of the program where we're broadcasting from the racer car wash studios racer car wash voted lubbock's best wash for five years running stop in one of five convenient locations across the bustling hustling growing hub city for the best wash around guaranteed that's where you'll find me about time about time to take the tundra back through racerwash.com the hot news today is that a lead candidate has been named or at least sourced by two texas tech officials the lead candidate in the coaching search remember uh, brent venable's name has been thrown out Uh, he's there at clemson you've got uh, Dana Holgerson, West Virginia, I believe has daughters in Midland and uh, connections with the area. I think he still has an 806, zero, uh, 806 area code on his cell phone. And because he coached at Tech for a little while. Uh, and you've, you hear rumblings within the Tech brass, the old guard for Art Bryles. And there's a lot of Mike Leach chatter out there still. You will note... I did not talk yesterday on the program about the fl- the plane, the jet that was being tracked. Lubbock, Fort Worth, Fort Worth, Lubbock, and then to Pullman, Washington. Thought it was probably a hoax. I didn't talk about it with you on air. And certainly somebody had a good time yesterday with that hoax. And uh, good on them, I guess. But with all those candidates, Venables, and... Uh, Holgerson and Leach Browse, Bob Stoops' name getting thrown out there as we talked about yesterday, and it all crescendos into two Texas Tech officials sourcing 
to Don Williams that the leader in the clubhouse right now at this very moment is Matt Wells of Utah State in the Mountain West Conference. Uh, Okay. Don Williams putting up in the Avalanche Journal that that, uh, Matt Wells is... 44 and 34 in six years since uh, he's taken over Utah State. And uh, this year they went 10 and 2. Has revived a program that uh, was a doormat going into the decade. And the Aggies were ranked at number 14 in the Associated Press before they were the Utah State Aggies were ranked number 14 before they got beat by Boise State last week. Some upside there that uh, David Yost at Texas Tech was has coached with Matt Wells, so all should be good for Alan Bowman. I think this. I'm not going to go into a whole despairing thing. I think Matt Wells is the backstop is what I think, and I think that what we're going to see, and I don't, I'm telling what I think, not what I know, but what I think is uh, Hokut's trying to make a big play. Maybe he can't get the big play done, and one of his, something like a leech doesn't work out, then he's going to go with Wells, and going ahead, and I don't know if that's a coordinated uh, leak or not, uh, to get people used to that name, to get them searching. Uh, I did a search for Matt Wells to bring up that pro that uh, story by Don Williams. I didn't have it bookmarked. And whenever you Google Matt Wells, it'll say Matt Wells, Matt Wells, Utah State, Matt Wells, Texas Tech. So the name already out there. And that's where things exist as we kick off this edition of the program. I would expect some movement in the next uh, 24, 48 hours. Because here's the thing, is that in Texas you have a 21-day waiting period. I believe that the clock has started on that. But And I try not to turn this into the other side of the Texas sports show, but the law and how it, in politics, and how they integrate in politics into sports is pretty great. You've got a 21-waiting-day period. And I'd have to go back and look at when... I believe that that started on Sunday. So early signing period, December 19, if you're worried about recruits, then you got to look at the law. And can a coach be on the road recruiting whenever he's not yet an employee? I'm sure that there are ways around it, but the clock is ticking on early signing period for a program that needs some big recruits and some depth. So that's where we head off. Uh, Matt Wells, the leader in the clubhouse. We're going to get Ross Ramsey, the leader in the clubhouse of my heart. Whenever it comes to Texas politics, my political counselor. Coming up right after the break, you don't want to miss the insight and the analysis from Ross as I boldly push him to where Ross Ramsey absolutely will not go. But it makes for good radio. Lyle Larson on University of Texas versus A&M. Loaded show for you. Stick right with us about 90 seconds from now. Coming back with the other side. This is what I saw. I saw miles miles of Texas. All the stars up in the sky. I 
Just the right guy to talk us through what's going on in state politics as we get into the weeds of what I always argue is the most influential form of government in your day-to-day life. That's Texas politics and Texas government. He is executive editor of the Texas Tribune, Ross Ramsey, out on the road doing the speaking circuit, buddy. Out telling everybody what the elections were all about and making my fantastic weird predictions about what the session's going to be about. So, you know, the normal BS. <laughs> Wait, you you're making predictions now. You're kind of up in the no. game. <laughs> no, I am not. Uh, but you know, I'm batting them down a lot. I'll tell you that. Oh, so you're talking about what it's not going to be, right? Uh, have That's you it. announced that you are not a candidate for the Texas Tech job? Uh, I have not, and I'm, I have not announced that I'm not running for president. There's a lot of things I haven't announced. Has Kirby Hocutt contacted you? Yes or no? <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> Uh, where have you been speaking? You know, just various groups around town and, you know, around uh, Texas that, you know, want to, you know, like I said, it really it's um, sort of, you know, a look at, you know, people are asking for a look at, you know, what how we interpret the elections and what's kind of on the plate for the legislature ahead. And, you know, it's a normal thing in our business, as you know, uh, this time of year, people are in that two-month period between a big election and a legislative session and there's a lot to talk about yeah you and i are doing one of these with the um urban county uh the league of urban county something it's the big urban counties and i said yeah it makes you wonder what they were thinking doesn't it yeah yeah (laughs) Uh, and if you mean that about me you're absolutely right i I, I mean it about both of us it's me you and harvey kronberg at the quorum report that'll be fun um Maybe Daniel, the millennial digital guru, uh, can get that uh, up on Facebook if people want to watch me sit up there and say, I don't know about that one, Ross. Uh, Let's talk about (laughs) things I don't know about that I need you to talk to us and the listeners about. It seems to me that rural Texas bailed out the big R's, uh, the, the Republican leadership of the state, the statewide electeds. Uh, at least a few of them were bailed out by rural Texas and it offsetting the votes in the the urban counties and urban centers in Texas and as they went so heavily democratic. A huge issue in rural Texas is its public school every respective community, it's public schools. To fix public education, I'm gonna go out and say this and then correct me if I'm wrong. I've seen estimates between three and six billion dollars, which means to the piece in one of your anal- your most recent analysis piece there at TexasTribune.org, are we going to do tax breaks or are we going to um, are we going to we going to end some tax breaks or are we going to do a tax hike if we're serious about addressing public school finance? You know the the trick to taxing. There's an old line about trying to get the most money for the less amount for the less the least amount of squeaking, and so you're trying to find a way to raise money for government that offends the, the fewest number of people, fewest number of taxpayers. And so, you know, they're in a spot because any legislator or, frankly, school board member or city council person or member of Congress who goes to a town hall meeting hears about property taxes pretty high up when you get to constituent questions. And 
they know they need to solve it. They know that it's a big problem, and they also know that it's a terrifically expensive problem. If you were to balance out the state's share and the local share of public education, right now, you know, the locals pay a lot more, uh, it would cost, you know, in the vicinity of $12 billion every two years. Wow. And $12 billion is, you know, every a lot of money two. even for Texas. Uh, yeah, every two-year budget, yeah. you'd have to have yes. another $12 billion. And that doesn't account for growth. Every year in Texas, we add about 85,000 students to the public school system. So, you know, these prices just keep on going up. Texas has zero income tax, which, you know, voters like a lot and Texans like a lot. Not much chance that they'll do anything about that. But as a result, you know, we have the sixth highest property taxes, you know, per property valuation in the country. We have the 12th highest sales tax rate. Um, and there's not a lot of places where you can go for more money if you're a Texas legislator. So this report just came out from Controller Glenn Hager that comes out annually, but it's a little bit more um, loaded, you know, at this time of year when you're talking about things like school finance. It's a listing of all of the tax exemptions and tax breaks, and, you know, they've got a million ways to say it. Um, but, you know, places where people don't pay taxes or companies don't pay taxes, and it amounts to $60 billion, mm. which, you know, initially sounds like easy pickings, but every one of those breaks has a constituent. You know, the homeowner's exemption on property taxes is one of those breaks. The sales tax exemption for groceries is one of those breaks. Wait, the sales tax the, exemption the, for prescription drugs is one of those breaks. Is that the 65 and older that it stays frozen? Is that what you mean by the... Well, there's, there's that one, and there's a homestead exemption that everybody gets. Oh, that, sure. You know, if you yeah. just claim your homestead, you get that, you know, that you don't pay taxes on that first little amount there. Um, mm. You know, and all of those things and things like those are in those tax breaks. So I would expect them probably to take that book apart. It's about 60 pages long and go line by line through there and see, you know, do we still want to do this? Do we still want to do that? really just because it's easier to do that and probably more politically practical and economically more practical than going through and saying, you know, we need to create some brand new tax that raises $12 billion a year. Hmm. That's smart. Now, Ross Ramsey with us in the piece. You do mention um, what you laid out before where there are exemptions, but also payers of Texas sales uh, motor vehicle sales, franchise, oil production, and gasoline taxes. Um, do you expect, speaking of making predictions that you don't want to make, do you expect <laughs> them to go through and to end some of these? I expect them to look at them really hard. And, you know, they're in a mood and in a mode where, you know, the budget is tight anywhere. There's a group up here called the Texas Taxpayers and Research Association, it does a pretty good job of laying out the budget stuff from outside the government. Um, it's mostly supported by industrial and commercial businesses, uh, so they have a business uh, twang to them, but they're good at the budget numbers, and they said, you know, about this time a year ago that Texas was headed for, uh, you know, starting their budget in need of about $8 billion, actually $7.9 billion. That was their guess for if the state keeps doing what it's doing, accounts for growth and inflation, and then if you look at its revenue, they're going to find $8 billion somewhere. Hmm. The controller came in later and said, you know, I think revenue is better than I thought before. Add $2.8 billion to that. So 
So now we're down to a hole of about $5.1 billion. And then you start talking about Hurricane Harvey and you start talking about school finance mm-hmm. and all of those kinds of things. And I think that means they're going to be, you know, shaking the couches to see if any quarters come out. Yeah. Hmm. I'm making a note here, Harris County, for the next subject that we're going to get into. But it, I was off. <laughs> it wasn't 3 or $6 billion, It was closer to $12 billion every two years. And just so listeners know, uh, listeners who have to deal with property taxes, you said that we pay a larger sum. Is that number local property tax or lo- local property owners, 55 cents of every dollar goes towards their independent school district is that about right it's somewhere in there it's 53 to 55 somewhere in there uh it's the it's just over the majority um and you know the balance of those taxes from the state you know local property values have been doing pretty well and over the last few years we've gotten what was a balanced system out of balance and that's really nobody's fault that's what it does over time Mm -hmm. you have to come back in and fix it uh, the 2019 estimate, the fiscal this next fiscal year, the estimate is that 55% of the cost of public education will be borne by local taxpayers and 35% by the state. Back in 2008, they were both at about 45%. Okay. Uh, let's switch over. And we're talking about Ross's pieces again. You can find them every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday texastribune.org. Here's the thing, Ross. <clears throat> lots of people talk about 2018, and there are a lot of theories that have lots of variables in why there were the Democratic gains that there were in Texas. But one variable that remains consen- the same, the control, if you will, in all these equations is Beto O'Rourke and Beto O'Rourke's presence. He's backed off what he said earlier, that he's not interested in running in 2020. Now he's open to it in whatever form that means, I don't know. If that means Cornyn, if that means vice president, if that means president. But there are some folks who won, and folks who you call barelys in Texas in 2018, that you think will be top targets in 2020. And I think you're especially right if Beto O'Rourke gets into a race again and energizes a base like he did again in Texas. Um, Tell us about these barelys and why they are the top targets. Well, you know, these are people, you know, they're all over the state, but they tend to be in urban and suburban areas. So, you know, there are, you know, a number of them in the Dallas area, Matt Shaheen, Jeff Leach, Morgan Meyer, Jonathan Stickland in the Houston, uh, Angie Chen Button in the Houston area, Dwayne Bohat. They're members that got elected to come back to the legislature barely. They just got by. And what that you know what that means in practical terms is that in two years the democrats are going to come hunting for them and the republicans are going to need to uh, defend those seats while at the same time they're trying to win back a bunch of the 12 seats that they lost this time so you know if you're one of those barelys then and this is going to be a case-by-case thing you know one of the things i'll be watching during the legislative session is are those members of the legislature as uh, have they become more cautious because they've just barely won re-election, or are they going to double down and try to show their voters, you know, what you know that they really, you know, were serious about this stuff and go forward and hope for the best in the next election? I think they're going to be a really interesting class of members. Yeah, and uh, lots of those that you just, just th- names you just threw out there, uh, state representatives in the Tarrant and Dallas County areas, the one by two 
2.5% or less. Uh, they were really right. on the verge. And a recount now in Dallas County involving Morgan Meyer, the incumbent Republican. I want to ask you this, though. Let's integrate the first question with the second here. As, as Republican statewide elected leaders look down at Harris County, it doesn't seem to me... It seems to me that it's within their responsibility for some Harvey relief, no doubt about it, as Texans. Sure. But sure. there's there's ethical responsibility, then there's political responsibility, right? And so uh, they look at Harris County as a big bowl of blue blueberries at this point, right? So do they whenever you talk about funding for Hurricane Harvey, do you think if Harris County were more competitive that there would be more onus on them to get this taken care of, or do you think it's going to be a little lax given the political realities there? No, I don't, I, you know, I really don't think party politics are going to play into this one. And, okay. and, you know, one way to look at it is, you know, Greg Abbott practiced law before he was um, named a judge in Houston and then to the Texas Supreme Court and then became attorney general and then became governor, so he's got a Houston tie. Dan Patrick, the lieutenant governor, is from Houston. The speaker presumptive, Dennis Bonin, is from Angleton, which has become, you know, kind of exurban Houston. Uh, those guys all represent areas or live in areas or have lived in areas where Harvey hit really, really hard. Um, it's the biggest city in the state. It's a huge economic driver, and I don't think any of the political concerns would be big enough to, you know, tell a state official where well, you can ignore Houston, Texas, okay. or or any of the places in the in the Gulf Coast. Honestly, you know, uh, from Victoria to you know Orange to all of those places, I think they're going to throw in. They also are hoping that the federal government will you know you know throw in in great measure, and then will also pay them back some of what they uh, pay out this time. They expect to pay out some money in Hurricane Harvey recovery and relief that they think the federal government will refund them. Okay, um, let's. Uh, we talk about there was a blue wave in Dallas and Tarrant and, well, I would argue Dallas and Harris especially. And that includes what people may not pick up on, Ross, and I'd love to hear you talk about, are appellate courts and appellate courts going blue in the way they did. These are the courts that we all look across as we go into the ballot booth and say, I have no idea who these people are. And that's why Bob Duncan some years ago said, these people ought to be uh, appointed by a committee because voters don't know who they are. And then it was like, right. no, you're trying to take the power out of the people. But people, by and large, go ask them who their appellate court members are, and, and they won't know for sure. Um, right. What does it mean, though, for a Republican legislature that the <laughs> appellate courts are blue? Well, you know, there are four courts in particular that got swept out um, by Democrats or now have either – all Democrats or Democratic majorities, the Fifth Court of Appeals in Dallas, the First and Eleventh Courts in Harris County, and the Third Court of Appeals here in Travis County. And I'll start with that last one, because the Third Court of Appeals, you know, all, these things are all over the state, and you can take these cases wherever you go, but they're, um, if something comes out of a state agency, a new set of rules, a new tax law, a new insurance enforcement, anything like that, it goes to the third court of appeals. And so that's an important court if you're involved in administrative law. And if you think that 
there's a difference between the way Democratic judges rule and the way Republican judges rule, um, then, you know, that might be of some concern to you. The same thing occurs in the Harris and Dallas courts, except they're not really administrative law courts as much as they hear a lot of business cases. And they hear a lot of business versus business and, you know, uh, workers' comp cases and all kinds of things like that. And the Republicans have had a hold on them for a long time. They have a lot of really good judges, some not-so-good judges who've been on those courts. But regardless of whether those judges were good or not, kind of to your point, voters voted them out because they were in a Democratic frame of mind. Hmm. So it could become a greater check on the legislature. Well, it might. I mean, you know, it, it depends on the extent to which you think, you know, Democratic judges are different from Republican judges. I can tell you that the... Some of the business groups, you know, um, Texans for Lawsuit Reform and some other groups like that are pretty worried about this because they, you know, thought that the Republican judges that were elected were the better choices, and now they've got to contend with Democratic judges on some of the biggest courts in the state. Well, um, Ross, I am going to give you kudos. Uh, Earlier you said controller and not comptroller, Glenn Hager. So um, you get more bonus points here as if you needed more. Here on the program, <laughs> got to ring, got to ring that bell, right? Yeah, got to, and I make a big deal of it. But um, hey, what uh, Bob Bullock used to, he used to tell people he was the controller. They didn't pronounce it correctly. They needed to go work in a new office. <laughs> At least that's what I read gotta, in the biography. Is that right? Got to, got to get the boss's title right. Okay, all right. Well, you are the boss at Ross Ramsey. Follow him there on Twitter. Uh, Ross, thank you for the time as always. Uh, let me get always, your, always a pleasure. Your quick take, right quick. Um, this bill by Lyle Larson to revive the rivalry, he's about to be on the program. Your take on reviving the rivalry between UT and A&M and mandating it from the legislature. You know, they're both they're both state institutions, and the legislature telling state agencies what to do would be nothing new. It's just weird that these two state agencies happen to have football teams. Um, it, <laughs> so he a, can do a, it. it. I mean, it's he could. I mean, can, the legislature could do it, and you know, they might be of a mind to do it. You know, it's a it's a great long Texas tradition. It's a great rivalry. Um, you know, you don't want to get rid of the of the tech Texas games. You don't want to get rid of the Texas Texas A and M games. So. Um, I don't know if it'll go anywhere, but it'll give them something, you know, um, to fight about other than party flags. Well, my thing has always been A&M was glad to get out of the Big 12, not because they were afraid of Texas, but because of uh, what Texas Tech had done to them in the decade previous. But I won't get you into that. You follow them again, at Ross <laughs> Ramsey on Twitter. Thank you as always, Ross. Take care, man. All right. We're going to get off and uh, get into a break, a quickie break here, and get back in with our friend. Lyle Larson, we're going to get into UT versus A&M. I know there are Aggies and Longhorns who listen. This is me throwing you a bone for having to listen to my monologues on Texas Tech. See you here in about 90. Your thoughts, 806-745-5800. As we roll along, I read from the aforementioned Texas Tribune, a Texas House member, wants to bring back an annual football game between the state's two flagship universities, the University of Texas at Austin and Texas A&M University. Though I think, technically, the flagship is Prairie View A&M. Isn't that right? 
and UT. I don't. I don't get into the criticism. They are flagships, but so far as post Civil War, uh, Texas A&M, whether they want to believe it or not, is an extension of the University of Texas. This week, State Representative Lyle Larson, a San Antonio Republican who earned a bachelor's degree from A&M, filed House Bill 412, which would require the two teams to play quote non-conference regular season football game against one another on the fourth Thursday, Friday, or Saturday of November each year. UT Austin and A&M have played each other more than 100 times, but the annual game ceased when A&M moved to the Southeastern Conference. The game was last played in 2011. Quote, we owe it to Texans to do all we are able to bring back this storied rivalry. Larson said in a statement, as filed, Larson's HB House Bill 412 would also dock a university from awarding athletic scholarships or, quote, similar financial assistance funded by state funds should it choose not to participate in the football game. Larson isn't the first state lawmaker to push for the two teams to resume the rivalry in 2013. Another A&M graduate, Ryan Guillen, a uh, Rio Grande City Democrat, filed similar legislation. The bill was referred to the House Committee, though it never received a hearing. So your thoughts, should the legislature, is this an issue of local control? Um, what is, what's your take on whether or not A&M and UT should be forced to play? We'll um, hear from Representative Lyle Larson any second now as um, he's joining the program, getting him queued up. Um, Some other thoughts uh, at the end of the program. Don't forget to remind me at the end of the program, I want to talk about my friend David Syme, who passed away tragically suddenly on Sunday from a heart attack. Um, The guy who loved Lubbock more than anybody I've ever known and taught me a great deal and want to spend some time just a couple of minutes talking about my friend David Syme um, coming up here on the program also something that Lyle Larson knows something about we've talked about um, we've talked about the regents and whether or not regents can be uh, we've talked in particular about Rick Francis and what the reappointment would look like there if there is to be a reappointment. We might drag Larson into a conversation, not about a particular individual, but regents in general. And here he is, Representative out of San Antonio, Lyle Larson. How are you, buddy? You know, it's a great afternoon, Jay. Thank you. Well, I appreciate you coming on. You're kind of becoming a regular state. You want us just to line you up with a uh, weekly segment here on the show? You know, you need to kick Frulo off and allow me to come on in his place. Yeah, I'd appreciate we that. We need to get Frulo on more often, that's for sure. Um, tell me how things are going. What are you thinking about the house as you enter in? Different uh, lay of the land. Yeah, I got a new speaker. uh you know, you got a lot of new committee assignments that are going to take place. Everybody's a little nervous about what's going to transpire, but I think overall the the focus is going to be uh, school finance, and we've been talking about that during the interim. It's going to to reduce people's taxes. About sixty five percent of all our property taxes, both on commercial and and our houses, is is your school tax, and the state 
over the last 20 years has gone from paying about 51% of that to about 37%. So, you know, we need to start going back the other way. The schools are constitutionally the responsibility of the state, and we need to start paying more of it. And then you're going to start seeing property taxes fall. They're they're connected at the hip. So as we as we fund more and you know that figures uh you know anywhere between five and eight billion dollars uh to write the ship and start it and then it's going to be perpetual from then so there it's a big challenge but i, I think the 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 new uh speaker elect and the uh both lieutenant governor and governor have all made this their number one priority so hopefully folks in your part of the state will start recon- uh, recognizing some of the uh uh, the tax savings that the state steps up. Yeah, we just had Ross Ramsey on, and want to get into UT and A&M with you, but real quickly, uh, Ross has asked a very interesting question. Is ending a tax break easier to swallow than a tax hike? Uh, do you expect you and your peers to go in and look at tax breaks and how um, how much how many billions of dollars are carved out in tax breaks rather than looking at tax hikes? I think that's one of the big issues, you know, in in regards to a lot of the economic development uh, strategy that's been deployed over the last three decades. We've uh, we've gone out and, and tried to to foster, uh, you know, development in the uh, high tech industries, uh, manufacturing industries, and w- with that uh, came uh, some pretty uh, pretty deep uh, tax. Uh, incentives that were given to these companies to, to build. I think right now our growth is about a thousand to twelve hundred new people a day that are moving into Texas, and uh, and then and the companies are moving here because we've got a good business climate. Uh, the cost of living is is lower. I mean, uh, just uh, so, uh, uh, multiple reasons, and so I, hear I think you we need to re- it, it worked. We, we need, yeah, we need to revisit that issue yeah. and. Uh, maybe not be as aggressive aggressive as we uh, have in the past because any dollar that uh, we give back uh, to the folks that are moving in here, obviously the the homeowners are going to have to uh, supplant that money that's uh, missing. Yeah. Uh, The aforementioned Ross Ramsey, I asked him as we were ending the segment uh, what he thought about the legislature requiring that uh, Texas A&M and UT renew this storied what you call a storied rivalry on an annual basis he said look it's nothing new for the legislature i'm paraphrasing it's nothing new for the legislature to require something of state agencies Um, it just so happens that these two state agencies have football teams what is your thinking in putting up this bill lyle larson just to start the dialogue you know there's never never uh, any intention in fact you can read into it and it's Anybody that understands anything about college football, the athletic foundations, uh, they're the ones that pay for the scholarships for football athletes. It's not the state. So Mm -hmm. we don't even have direct control of that. The idea was we've gone since 2011. The rivalry hasn't uh, been played out. I mean, I graduated from A&M in 1981. My dad was class of 56. My brother he defected and went to the USSR at, at, in Austin and played football <laughs> for him in 71 through 73. And, you know, we uh, it was embedded in our uh, our family. And I, I just think there was a lot of hard feelings. I met with with uh, President Powers in 2012 and, and talked 
uh, talked to, to him about the concept, and he said that Mac Brown and the lost odds at that point did not want to play the game, and John Sharp was pushing for it. And I think back and forth we've had uh, different reasons, the Longhorn Network, uh, the SEC. You know, the kids uh, that are in school right now since 2015, they've never participated uh, in, in that rivalry. They've, uh, at least on campus, and the idea is, is, is try to strike a dialogue and it definitely has created uh, some dialogue but i don't believe the legislature should mandate that uh, texas tech play uh, a&m or the texas tech or, or you know a&m or, or ut playing each other i think that should be organically uh, come about in a way that both schools feel comfortable that we need to renew it and hopefully you know, they'll listen to the people on their campuses. I know overwhelmingly the student body UT and the biggest percentage of positive feedback we got were Aggies uh, that are sitting in class, uh, you know, uh, you know, wanting that rivalry to, to continue. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that, that was the motivation on, on the bill. Just I would like to have a healthy dialogue. And if it doesn't happen, you know, sometime uh, hopefully it will come together in my lifetime because uh, that's one of the best football games uh, that, that I've ever uh, been involved with. Yeah. Uh, we have Lyle Larson, state representative out of San Antonio with us here with that bill. And, you know, there are other bills that you put up that we certainly want to talk about at a later time with you. But what I hear you saying is not quite a stunt, but this bill to initiate a conversation, but to ultimately send the message that if cooler heads can't prevail, we can always make you do this. Yeah, it can, but I don't think there's a willingness in the legislature to do that, Jay, to be honest with you. I, I, you know, I, I think that uh, the, the governor appoints those board of regents, uh, and they have oversight of the, the systems and uh, the main campuses of, of all those systems, obviously, are sort of a, a, the prefer- get the preferential treatment from uh, the regents. And so I think you know, John Sharp has indicated a willingness uh, to, to to open up and and try to work something out. And I know that uh, Fimbus, uh, the president at UT, I don't know the new chancellor, but I knew General uh, Admiral McRaven. He told me point blank that he wanted to to try to get that rivalry restarted before he left. So I've I've talked to a lot of the players that are would be in the decision making position and. You know, it's going to be up to them to make the decision. I think uh, we can encourage them uh, to look at all aspects of it, but ultimately they're the ones that are going to have to put it together and change the schedule and, and accommodate the this game being played. Yeah, even I saw a fairly prominent Aggie on Facebook say, hey, uh, this bill is bullarchy, I'm paraphrasing, but um, – we have a rivalry game. We just played it against LSU. What do you say to your fellow Aggie brethren who discount this idea of the need to reignite this rivalry? Yeah, I, LSU. Uh, you know, organically, our rivalry is is UT. It's you know the reason being is we go to school. We grow up with kids that go to both schools. We don't go to school with Boudreaux and Thibodeau. I mean, those guys are the ones that go to LSU and don't quite understand how uh, how they they say everything they say. You know, they're a robbery because they're the closest one to us in the SEC, you know, from a distance standpoint. But, you know, a rivalry will grow. But LSU's robbery, to be honest with you, it's Alabama right now. Alabama, Auburn, 
Florida and, and Mississippi, uh, Mississippi State and A&M, we're coming in, and we're sort of the late guys coming in, but mm-hmm. you can see the fervor of the games that they have. So LSU, you know, they consider us another game in the SEC, and it will grow, but I still believe that if, if, if you're growing up and you're, your friends are going to one school and you're going to the other, I think that's uh, the makings of, of a, a robbery. And, you know, we also – there's songs uh, uh, that we sing at, at both schools that have mention of the other school. There's stories yeah. been told, the folklore of, of, of college football in Texas. It's based around a century of that game. And I'd like to see it. And I know some Aggies uh, have, have corresponded with me. You know, the hell with UT, you know, those pompous ass don't need to be part of our schedule and the rest of it. And I just respectfully disagree. I'd yeah. like to play them. And I think the last six years we would have would have kicked their butts. Uh, we'd yeah. have a whole lot better program they have. And, unfortunately, we didn't get that chance. Yeah, it says something that uh, within your fight song, school song, you're going to say something along the lines of saw Bevo's horns off. Um yeah, fall varsity, fall varsity yeah. horns off. I yeah. guess, I guess if we're playing this league, LSU, we can say Saul Tiger's ears off. I don't know. No. It just doesn't sound the same. It doesn't feel the same. Hey, uh, Lyle Larson, I want to text the uh, uh, test the dexterity of your legislative mind here while we got you. You said that the governor appoints regents. He certainly does. Um, you had a bill about the reappointment of state officials and i want to ask you this question because we're trying to clarify here if a region is up for appointment a region whose term is expiring in january and that region is not reappointed nor is that region replaced they hold over until the beginning of the next legislative cycle correct yes and sometimes they uh, sometimes they'll hold over I mean, there's an evergreen clause built into that, and there's been reasons, and other state Wait, agencies. What is an evergreen people, clause? That means it it'll continue if no no actions taken. Okay. And there's uh, and it just it carries over, and a lot of contracts there'll be an evergreen clause that says the person that's appointed uh, will continue that uh, that position until until someone else is selected, uh, and uh, the Senate. Uh, if, if Senate approval needs to take place, uh, that will uh, that has to take place. That person, you know, ostensibly they could sit there for uh, 16, 18 months if uh, they just forego uh, not uh, not replacing them. So, so, and that's happened. I know at A&M there's been some board of regents. I know Parks and Wildlife there's been some positions that uh, that have uh, gone over in the next session. Some of the rationale behind that from governors is they wanted. The continuity and and the uh, uh, the region uh, the regents uh, that are representing that school some had historic knowledge of legislation that's being pursued so they wanted to keep them on uh, when they had new regents that, that didn't understand the legislative packages that are being pursued by the school uh, they might have been somewhat at a disadvantage against some of the other schools if regents were directly involved yeah so but does it just is it into perpetu- infinity and beyond, as my children would understand it. I mean, it gets held over. So let's say that, let's say just for instance, Lyle Larson, that we had a region at Texas Tech who was up for reappointment in January and was not replaced and was not reappointed, then that 
regent would hold over until the beginning of the legislature in 2021, but then the governor at that time could decide not to replace or reappoint, and then they carry over to 2023, 2025, and beyond? They would, uh, my understanding of the process, and I've seen where people have been uh, held over and haven't been replaced, and I haven't seen them go, you know, two years, but I've seen them go through the legislative process of the, of the next year that okay. they were, uh, you know, that they were held over and then they, uh, they stayed because nobody replaced them. So, uh, but I haven't seen somebody go into, uh, you know, uh, uh, consecutive sessions without having uh, be a, a new appointee had been replaced. Yeah, for you spend a lot of time. We've talked with you about pay to play, and you you fa- you focus a lot on these state uh, official appointments. Uh, how how rare is it to see a regent that's done twenty consecutive years? Oh, that's pretty rare. I mean, usually you want to get new blood. Uh, you want to get uh, some. You you want to have a balance on the board of regents. You want to have some experience, but then you want to infuse it with new blood, new ideas. You'd like to have sort of a, a, a balance, the standpoint from the age. Uh, you don't want a bunch of old white guys running a a a, a, a school or or, or so, uh, a university system. You want to have some diversity, uh, have a lot of different ideas that are being uh, projected into the uh, chancellor's office about the directions that they need to go. And so I think that it's healthy to to, to purge. The, uh, the the board of regents, you know, so often, and you've seen UT and A and M. They've got a lot of new faces on on the board of regents uh, over the last few years, and I think it's been healthy. And you know, they they're they're very aggressive. Uh, the regents are asking the questions. Uh, the chancellors can't get complacent. And you know, I was a I was a big big fan of uh, your former chancellor. That guy. As a rock star in Austin, but just a, just a hell of a nice guy, and we're going to miss him. <laughs> I'm sure he's going to appreciate it whenever he hears the podcast. He is at Rep Lyle Larson on Twitter, and expect to hear from you again soon, and we appreciate you making time here. Okay, Jake. Take care of yourself. All right. Go solve Arcee's uh, horns off there. Yes, sir. We will. <laughs> Arcee's right. horns off. All right. Uh, I'm not very well-versed in A&M culture. Though some people think that the world missed an axis turn or two and I didn't wind up at A&M. I think uh, I rave on too much for A&M culture. I'd be a two percenter for sure. Um, stick with us. Got some words to say about my friend David Syme. See you in about a minute or two. A gringo Jeff texting in, did he just say Boudreaux and Thibodeau? He did say Boudreaux and Thibodeau. Um, and I expect that each ends in R-E-A-X. Uh, appreciate Lyle Larson again. My friend David Syme died tragically. Uh, David Syme, a happy state bank, um, died tragically on Sunday, suddenly, unexpected and um, of a heart attack. <clears throat> And I wrote this, and I'd just like to put it on record on air here on the program, because I talk a lot about place and the importance of place. But a place is made up by friendships and by 
relationships that help bring the contours to that place that are as as familiar that place as as the planes of the place of the characteristics of the place the place is built up by the legacy of those who preceded and those who are older and in that regard I'm profoundly thankful that I had the opportunity to know David Syme many of you know that Charity and I moved away from Lubbock area in 2002 and moved back in late 2011. That was a disruptive decade and one that's beginning to even back out now. Um, But a disruptive decade um, politically, but also with growth in Lubbock, but especially politically. Somehow we went from, um, and David would appreciate me citing this, somehow we went from Larry Combus as our congressman to Randy Nagabauer. Um, who went like hardline libertarian slash Republican and I always wondered how a place that was built on education and higher education, public education, medical and agriculture policy uh, could be so red. Uh, We have a habit of talking awfully red and having an economy that's very blue dependent in Lubbock. And I got back and I was really confused about these events and what was going on and uh, in many ways didn't recognize the place to which I'd returned and by the grace of God I was soon put in the path of someone who loved Lubbock and knew Lubbock more than anyone I've ever met and over many lunches and many phone calls leaning over the bed of my truck as I talked with David Syme I began to be reoriented to my place and a place that I spent a great deal of time talking about and writing about today Our community suffered a stunning loss on Sunday, and his family so much more. We pray for them that they can trust the Lord's heart if they can't trace his hand in this loss. As I grow older, I find one gift of the Spirit that is implicitly, though not explicitly, referenced in the text, and that gift is a sense of reciprocity. A person who does not, who a person who does unto others as they would want done unto them, and to do so unto others, even if what's done to them doesn't meet one's own standard, and in the case of the shortfallings of others, one does unto others as the Lord has done unto them. And David had a grasp on this, and that's something I saw embodied in a man who loved Lubbock as much as anyone I've ever known, and I'll miss hearing in talking with my friend David Syme and our thoughts from the Lisa Ponderosa our thoughts and prayers and I mean that literally uh, to Syme to the Syme family and all those that are grieving that loss so with that I gotta get home gotta get home great family above average dinner last night we ate at Red Lobster because Charlie's five-year-old birthday he loves what he calls the lobster hand store the crab hand store is what he calls it and i can guarantee you this dinner will be better tonight than it was last night i can promise you that so uh for ross ramsey state representative lyle larson boudreau and thibodeau rave on buddies until next time rave on we'll see you next episode here on the other side of texas I'm gonna find us.
siempre con la mano.